Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is April 25th, 2023, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, I'm so excited, but don't call it excited delirium. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Brooks Walsh. He is a former paramedic and is currently an emergency physician in Bridgeport Hospital, Yale New Haven Health in Connecticut. Welcome to the SGM Brooks. Wonderful to be here. Um, a, a huge fan of your podcast, the quality and just the range of topics. We, we uh, you know, emergency medicine, it's a big tent, right? It's anyone for anything at any time. It's almost like it's too much. <laughs> it is a big tent. Well, this is an SGM Extra episode, and you reached out to me recently to see if we could revisit the issue of excited delirium. We had done a show on the topic five years ago on SGM 218, and at that time we recognized there was no universally accepted definition of excited delirium. The American College of Emergency Physicians, or ASEP, defined the term in 2009 as, quote, acute delirium, not linked to dementia or pre-existing pathologies, associated with extreme physical and psychomotor agitation, end of quote. You would like ASEP to revisit that term of excited delirium. Why? Well, uh, I think I'd, I'm just going to take a step back and look at that framing about revisiting the use of the term, because uh, that's often the way the, the question is phrased. And it, it's true that sometimes in medicine, uh, you know, a term or the wording of a diagnostic label is a problem in and of itself. Not too long ago, uh, we were referring to vanco vancomycin infusion reactions as Redman syndrome. It wasn't apparent a linked at that time, the, the phrase uh, red man syndrome wasn't really linked to any larger racial concepts, but nonetheless, it was taken as offensive by many people, and we've rightly moved on to just identifying it more objectively. Other terms do have a lot more freight behind them. I, I bring up the example of um, not so long ago, we referred to uh, trisomy 21 as mongolism. Uh, there was some it was termed partially for uh, resemblance, superficial resemblance of the facial features to people from certain parts of the world in Trisomy 21. But it was also tied up with historical racist conceptions of skull size and faces and races and intelligence and, and ranking of the races. And, and, and so that, that was uh, uh, confronted and changed quite rightly. So I just go ahead and say the term excited delirium actually hasn't been the issue. Um, actually, its first use back in 1981 was probably just fine the way it was. It's a lot of the underlying concepts and uh, the criteria that are used more um, to define it now. Well, the historical issue actually goes back much farther than 1981. It goes back to almost 200 years ago. And that was when Dr. Luther Bells described extreme agitation observed while he was a superintendent of the McLean's Asylum for the Insane. The condition was named Bell's Mania when published in the American Journal of Insanity. Yeah, you can see how words matter and how language <laughs> changes. Can you imagine that? The American Journal of Insanity. It's now called the American Journal of Psychiatry. But this was back in October of 1849. I'm sure you have a copy of that one. Uh, I, I, I actually did grab a copy. <laughs> well, I, I, I'd, I would, I think I'd push back on the idea that excited delirium, as we discuss it today, has a long medical history. 
1849 was a pretty long time ago. Uh, it, just to be clear, it predated the germ theory. Uh, John Snow in London had yet to take the handle off the Broad Street pump because of the cholera outbreak. And the stethoscope had barely been introduced into uh, American medicine at that point. Doctors only had to take, if they went to medical school, they took a four-month course, um, repeated it the next year, and then they had their degree. Uh, and psychiatric evaluation and terminology was pretty rudimentary, uh, to say the least. So I'm not sure, some people would cite that as the origin or the first recognition of excited delirium. I don't think we can actually say that. And for what it's worth, those patients were pretty darn different than what we described today. They, they were observed, uh, Dr. Bell saw the patients over a period of days to weeks suffering from waxing, waning delirium. These were, many of the, uh, them had long stays. There was no ability to test for um, encephalitis, meningitis, other forms of delirium. Uh, or to really uh, uh, properly diagnose someone psychiatrically. So I, I, I dare to say, I think it's uh, kind of irrelevant. Sure. It's interesting how, you know, when we look back and try to pinpoint an exact inflection point when things happen, and it really is hard to define those inflection points. Often it's a, a progression from something to something else to something else. And just when I was listening to you describe that in the tone of your voice about, you know, the stethoscope was barely introduced, you know, that like a hundred years from now, they're going to be saying, you know, they were still using a stethoscope back then when they could have bedside ultrasound. What a bunch of <laughs> barbarians, right? So we have to be careful not to be too judgy about looking backwards because we too will be judged potentially on what we're doing. And like most things, it reminds me of Star Trek. And I remember in Star Trek Four, the voyage home, that's the one with the whales. You know, when McCoy comes and Chekhov has been injured when he's searching for the nuclear vessels. And uh, he's had a head injury and he's like, oh, my goodness, are you guys still drilling holes in skulls and using cat gut to suture people? So, well, to be clear, there are some examples from the literature that show tremendous insight and, and just very astute observations. I'm, it's not clear that this was one of those examples. Well, let's jump forward then to uh, the term excited delirium syndrome, which you, you mentioned earlier was coined in the early 1980s after there were a flurry of deaths in individuals who were in custody or during arrest situations following extreme agitation. And excited delirium usually involved men in their 30s, and this is the 1980s, so cocaine, some methamphetamine, or ecstasy abuse was involved. Yeah, back in 1980s, a medical examiner for the uh, city of Miami, uh, Dr. Wetley, um, he first coined the term in a 1981 case report. It was otherwise a, a pretty um, a, a standard case report of a cocaine body packer where one of the packages had ruptured. But he used the term excited delirium in a way that uh, we use it in a more contemporary sense in a 1985 case series. These were all people who um, had had deaths there was there was some detectable cocaine in the blood, and all had been restrained prior to uh, their deaths. As part of the inclusion criteria, he described that they were all um, specifically excluded by autopsy or witness accounts from dying from mechanical asphyxia, uh, but there's no further description of that. And so he described these people, the characteristics of these people who died with um, very minimal levels of cocaine in their system, 
describe them as uh, showing before their deaths, fear, panic, shouting, physical violence, hyperactivity, and unexpected strength requiring several people to restrain them. He also described uh, the deaths being unexplained by uh, anything clear and suggested that this was the excited delirium syndrome. And that kind of fits with um, what the authors of the 2009 report put down. Can you imagine uh, what would happen if cocaine bear happened back in the 1980s? It would be that cocaine bear would be called excited delirium, I guess. <laughs> That's we'll have to get on uh, for the next uh, podcast. You need a veterinarian on there or veterinary psychiatrist to talk about the bears to address the cocaine bear situation. Well, that brings us up to talking about the actual paper for this episode. And I base this episode on an article that you published called Revisiting Excited Delirium. Does the diagnosis reflect and promote racial bias? And this was published in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine, Integrating Emergency Care with Population Health in 2023. And so could you bring us up to speed now on where this term stands now? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I think we do have to just step back to the 2009 report, because I think a lot of us working doctors don't actually um, know much about the term. I think when, when I was uh, uh, a younger doctor, um, I didn't know much about the term excited delirium. I'd actually referred to the 2009 paper a number of times just to look up what they suggested for IM doses, etc., so I just want to go over the 2009 paper. So there's sort of a common ground, uh, a context for uh, our current paper. Back in 2008, um, there was a resolution at um, ASAP conference to study excited delirium and to uh, a plan to disseminate the paper to uh, emergency medicine, EMS, and law enforcement. And in 2009, that paper was presented to the ASAP board and approved by them. And it's been widely disseminated and cited since then. It, it, it starts off uh, very early on by, by stating that it is the consensus of the task force that excited delirium syndrome is a unique syndrome, which may be identified by the presence of a distinctive group of clinical and behavioral characteristics. As one of the key features, they describe it as a very dangerous condition where many of the current deaths are likely not preventable, where death is preceded by acute drug intoxication with perhaps mental illness, involves a struggle with law enforcement, with physical, chemical, or, or taser attempts at control, sudden and unexpected death, and a autopsy which does not reveal a definite cause of death. They go on with their definition. You, you, linked, you, you described part of their definition of excited delirium, it definitely involved like agitation, combativeness, uh, tachycardia, tachypnea, etc. But they also specified that these people were also likely to show hyperaggressive or bizarre behavior, be very tolerant or impervious to pain, uh, show unusual strength or superhuman strength, and that these uh, 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 a key feature was police non-compliance or behavior that generated calls to police. And they emphasized that it, it could recur with minimal restraint, that it was a potentially fatal syndrome in and of itself. And after this was presented to the board and approved, it was widely described as um, ASAP was characterized, I think, or quoted, very, um, described very often as having formally recognized excited delirium. So this is the context which we stepped into here. 
So this is right around 2008, 2009, 2010, when this process is taking place, when ASEP called for this sort of task force to look at this idea in 2008 and then published this 2009 paper. But it wasn't published in a journal, but it was published, but it wasn't published in a journal and it was shared widely. And then it sort of got adopted into the language of use within EMS, law enforcement, emergency medicine, into our culture a bit, didn't it? Yeah, it's funny, and I think there's. I don't. I don't think I fully appreciate this, but it's 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 sort of had differential uptake. For example, I mean, it's, it's, some of the definitions are are fairly uh, uh, explicit in EMS protocols or in some police educational materials, whereas I think most emergency physicians we don't really we haven't really been exposed to those explicit criteria. It's funny. I, I was talking with a a very well-read, literate, polyglottal uh, co-worker of mine and um, describing that I was talking about excited delirium and he, he got very emotional and said, how can you say it's not real? It's quite real. And I, I was a little surprised that he had such a passionate take on this. It turns out he thought I was talking about anticholinergic poisoning. So I don't think most of us have really looked at this issue the same way it's uh, other people have been exposed to it. Well, there has been increasing awareness of the evidence that black men receive this diagnosis of excited delirium more often than white men. And those black men labeled as having excited delirium, having higher mortality rates than their white counterparts. And most recently, a report released by Physicians for Human Rights in March of 2022 highlighted these concerns attracting coverage from national news organizations. Now, in the emergency department, we we try to be physicians who will treat anyone for anything at any time, hopefully without judgment. And there's been an increased recognition of the implicit and explicit biases in the house of medicine. And that includes, but is not limited to race, gender, age, and socioeconomics. Yeah, indeed. And some of that is what sort of motivated us to tackle this. But I think it was a little bit more or a little bit less than that. I'm, like I said, I'm a regular ER doc. I, I take care of combative, delirious, intoxicated, head injured patients all the time. And, and definitely uh, a number of them need restraint or sedation to effectively evaluate and treat them. Like I was just saying, I didn't really give thought, much thought to excited delirium as an entity in and of itself. I just saw patients who needed control momentarily to maintain safety and those who didn't. I'll say that I've been an ASIP member when I remembered to pay my dues for the last 15 years. I joined as a medical student, actually. And I'm very proud of the vast majority of work that ASIP does. The clinical policies in particular, I, I thought, are, are, are just really reflect our perspective on the literature and are very useful. I, the asymptomatic hypertension policy is, uh, uh, guideline is, is um, perhaps one of the best examples of that. I was just going over the recent heart failure recommendations uh, from ASAP, just so very useful and very validating for us. In the wake, in 2020, after the deaths of uh, George Floyd and reading about uh, the death of Elijah McClain, I went, I went back to that 2009 document. I wanted to read it closer. And uh, I was surprised to be really disappointed by a lot of stuff in that paper. The writing, uh, the the quality of the evidence that they cited, and some of the just frankly odd language. So I realized that many other folks were seeing the same things and discussing these publicly. 
But these folks um, weren't emergency medicine doctors. Uh, maybe they were physicians who were neurologists or psychiatrists. Maybe they were lawyers, civil rights advocates or reporters, but they were very easily dismissed with the objection that, you know, you don't see the things we do as emergency doctors or as EMS. I thought to myself, hey, I see those things. And I realized I, I kind of had a unique place to speak from um, with some credibility, I hope. I've been a medic. I'm an ER doc in a big, bad, scary city. It probably makes a difference if I had my voice here. Honestly, I kind of thought if I ever appeared on SGM, I would be talking about, uh, you know, some paper I did with uh, on EKG stuff with Steve Smith or review of new evidence for uh, use of point-of-care echocardiography. Um, I'm a little surprised I'm here. Well, every once in a while on the SGM, we, we do take a step back. We get that 30,000-foot view. We do these SGM extras to tackle sort of more philosophical issues. And ASAP uh, has made equitable treatment of patients a priority, including the recognition of the role of implicit bias uh, experts in emergency medicine. And a statement from ASAP described the, uh, the death of George Floyd, which you referred to earlier, as a manifestation of a public health emergency and affirmed that ASAP's mission includes the promotion of health equity within the communities we serve. And I'm sure that people could go back and look at stuff that I had written in 2008, 2009, 2010, and it may not be as accurate. So I hope that I would be given the opportunity to update my position as new information becomes available. Uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes is, you know, do the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better. And so is this in part responsible for why you and some of your colleagues wrote this article about revisiting excited delirium? Oh, indeed. I, and uh, I really hope that we all have opportunities to revisit our previous perspectives, judgments and decisions and, and, and readdress them. Yeah, well, we've really seen that happen with COVID as an acceleration. You know, when you have a novel virus come out and you don't have a lot of information, you're a practicing emergency physician. We make life and death decisions sometimes, usually on very limited information. And so we're expecting on a grander scale, COVID, to make decisions about public health and what to recommend based on a very narrow slice of information. But then when new information comes out, a sign of a good scientist and an open mind and a critical thinker is, I didn't know that then. I know this now, and so I'm going to change my position or respond differently based on the new information. That actually elevates my impression of someone who can do that uh, and change their position based on new information rather than doubling down and saying, you know, X works or X doesn't work or we need to do this or lockdowns or masks or all sorts of things. Lord knows that's true. Any, any physician who works through uh, that time period and can't tell you five things that they... Um... Uh, still still haunt them about what they could have done differently. Let's go through your article, and there were five key points. So the first thing is, in this article about excited delirium and revisiting it, uh, the first point is continued lack of a clear definition. And I mentioned that earlier, and that was in the SGM 218, talking about, you know, we don't have a clear definition of excited delirium. So do we now? You know, that really hasn't advanced, and it, it's, in some ways, it's gone... Uh, in an opposite direction. So originally, uh, back in the 2009 paper, they, they put together a bunch of the features that I described above, and they described these as forming the basis of a, uh, quote, potential case definition. 
suggesting that these would be revised or you know um, refined in the future. But no one really has done anything significant to refine those criteria. Um, a lot of studies, authors, just continue to use the same clinical features of verbatim. Others uh, use uh, a surrogate method to identify cases, like a police officer identification of cases. And, and other studies just don't get specific, and they leave it up to, uh, I guess, provider gestalt. The irony is, uh, in last year, the... Uh, the British uh, Royal uh, College of Emergency Medicine put out a document about acute behavioral disturbance, which uses basically the criteria in the 2009 ASAP paper uh, verbatim. So rather than these, this serving as a potential case definition, it's, it's, it's taken on new... They just put a new label on it, like a new term, but it's still describing the same thing? Essentially. And so they're really, Royal College of Emergency Medicine has decided to call this acute behavioral disturbance. And rather than solving a problem by changing the term, it actually seems to have provoked some confusion and concerns that all the same issues with the prior criteria still uh, are going on. So, yeah, just like, like we mentioned, uh, like you mentioned in the 2018 episode, there's still no universally accepted definition. All right. Well, the second key point you make is that excited delirium is a health issue. So whatever we want to call it and whatever's happening, this is a health issue. Yeah, a health issue and a health equity issue. Um, we have to realize that this is a medical, what was framed as a medical issue is affecting people. People are labeled as having this disorder and they have treatments applied to them, restraint, uh, sedation. And some people die after being labeled with this. And so it's, it's squarely in our house as a health issue. And I want, to put a, I want to put a really definite point on this because that was point number three and that it is a health equity issue because there's some disparities that have been recognized with regards to this diagnosis and the treatments applied and the morbidity and mortality that's been associated with it. Yeah, that's the only thing that seems to have been clear since 1985. It seems to um, affect black people way more often than white people. There's decades of this literature. Um, actually, ironically, uh, the 2009 report did cite uh, four studies that pointed to this disparity even at that time, but there was no significant discussion of uh, that aspect of those studies in that paper. Uh, the paper actually you discussed back on SGEM 218 did mention that being black seemed to be an independent risk factor for death in people who were labeled with having excited delirium. And um, there's some further worried work done by uh, another emergency physician, Jared Strout, looking at the breakdown of uh, cases of excited delirium in an urban location, and with 56% of those being black individuals, while only 35% were white. So that leads into the fourth point about how this is a racialized criteria for the diagnosis. And you mentioned some of the other research that's been done. It always surprises me that we, when we come to this and go, oh, look, we've, we found that there are biases. I mean, we all have biases. So I'm not being critical of other people. I'm not throwing rocks in a glass house. We all have biases, both implicit and explicit. And 
we need to take steps to try to minimize those biases and reflect upon that and recognize that so maybe we can address that and we're not causing harm when we when it comes to treating the people that are in need coming to us in the emergency department. I think this really is common sense stuff. Um, you know, once once the once the criteria once once you read the criteria with a little closer eye, these things do pop out at you. I I just thought it was unusual that a medical journal would have uh, a medical article would have uh, criteria such as superhuman strength or impervious to pain, which really sounded more like a villain Batman would face uh, rather than a, a human being. So, you know, superhuman strength, impervious to pain, as well as focusing on so-called hyper-aggressive behavior were, were three of the diagnostic criteria that raised some concern. I'll talk about the strength aspect. Uh, certainly in American history, black men have, uh, have been perceived for a long time as stronger than white men. And so superhuman, a uh, description of superhuman strength certainly has, uh, uh, um, is tied up in our racial history. Uh, and I, this isn't just opinion. Uh, still, a, a significant proportion of Americans are, are likely to attribute superhuman or fantastical qualities to, to black individuals. Psychological tests show that um, people are likely to overestimate the size and weight and strength of a of a black face rather than a white face, and so we can't ignore this being included in the criteria. Similarly, with the um, and, and actually, as physicians, much more dismayingly, black individuals are believed to feel less pain than white. We've seen this in a um, a study by, uh, it's been much quoted by Hoffman in 2016, that even medical students carried this uh, belief that black people did not feel the same degree of pain as white people. Uh, seen in nurses as well. Yeah, you see that in the uh, published literature on oligoanalgesia with regards to providing adequate pain medicine. You find that some groups, um, whether it depends on their skin color, their age, uh, you know, those types of things, um, there are certain groups that uh, don't get as much uh, attention to things that we consider quite painful. This arguably has roots in the uh, era of slavery, how we perceived um, the, the suffering that a black man or person would take. Uh, lastly, they describe the hyperaggressive behavior, and they even say that they uh, may act bizarre or vocalize, quote, guttural sounds. And uh, there's evidence that people have viewed black individuals as more animalistic and dangerous than white individuals. I think closer to home, um, some of my colleagues just up the road at Yale did a study of restraint in our emergency department. So this, this hits where I live. And I like to think that we're a pretty um, thoughtful uh, community of ED physicians in my neck of the woods. We do have a focus on health equity. And in our system, uh, with Yale and Bridgeport and other hospitals, we found that we restrained black people more often than white. So that has caused some reflection there. Um, who we see as more dangerous, uh, as more aggressive, that hits close to home. It's uh, never surprising to me that when we go looking for inequity in the house of medicine, when we look for it, we find it. And if you don't look for it, guess what? You don't find it, but it's still there whether you look for it or not. I wanted to get to the fifth point, though, and this is a fifth key point that you raised, and I'm going to use my best sort of sarcasm voice here, so because it's an audio show. Come on, isn't this just semantics? 
that's a that's um I'm I'm very sympathetic to that response. It, it, it is because again that reflects our very pragmatic sense as emergency physicians. Um, a lot of us respond, "Hey, I'm here to take care of patients. Some of them need to be sedated. I'm going to do that. Give me the tools for that." Without really thinking about the uh, uh, the larger uh, 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 situation. The problem with the semantics is that they're not trivial. We, I, I talked, uh, you know, briefly about mongolism versus trisomy 21 earlier. The semantics isn't trivial. Uh, for example, the authors of the 2009 report, you know, admitted that there were several other diagnostic labels they could have used, you know, from the DSM or the ICD-8 or whatever it was back then. But they thought that there was a distinct entity of excited delirium, and it had key features such as superhuman strength, hyperaggressive, impervious. And so the semantics of excited delirium were crucial for them, not just the term, but the meaning, the definition. So those semantics should be important to us as well. And we've seen, when I described the problems with acute behavioral disturbance in the UK, even though they've switched the name, they're still wrestling with many of the same issues of biased response and misdiagnosis. Since you're in this area and in this space, do you find that those people who raise the question, isn't this just semantics, are they usually the people that are not in the group? that are being described? I think all of us are a little different. I think some folks perhaps might be a little defensive about their work in framing it, in, in, in helping uh, codify excited delirium. I think a lot of emergency physicians don't like, I think they hear a criticism of excited delirium and they think that yet again, it's another criticism coming from people who don't understand the challenging patients we see. That, that, that we don't see patients who need immediate sedation or restraint. I'm sympathetic to that perspective. We, we do get criticized from outside our bubble quite often, and uh, it's not appreciated. <laughs> Once we establish we have that common ground, I think people are much more um, receptive to this discussion. Well, that's a nice way forward to talk about constructive ways to move forward. And in your article, you came up with four action items. And so I couldn't leave it at four. I had to add one to get to my favorite number of five. So we're going to go through five action items to move forward. And the first one that you suggest and your author group suggests is that emergency medicine should avoid the concept of excited delirium. Sure. Like I said, just avoiding those that that framing of superhuman or hyperaggressive. Um, this hasn't proven to be any more useful or have any more scientific validity than uh, other diagnoses. And if there's a suggestion of harm or even just the sense of racism in the definition, it's it's best to avoid that going forward. And then the second thing is clinicians should use established medical diagnoses. And we've already had those. And actually, you know, the 2009 report does point out a bunch of different ICD uh, codes uh, for those, you know, delirium or drug intoxication or agitation. There are plenty of those labels and definitions out there, and those are just fine to use. And then in your 2023 paper, you suggest that ASEP should retire the 2009 report. Yeah, this is uh, the toughest suggestion. I guess it depends on what you mean by retire, right? Yeah, well, 
This is the thing. The 2009 report, it can't be retracted from a journal. It was never published in a journal. And there's controversy. ASEP currently says that it never really formally endorsed the, uh, the report or informally endorsed excited delirium as a diagnosis. So we're left with this funny area about what to call the actions going forward. And I settled on retire as, as the term. But what that actually means is that given this understanding that ASA lent its name to the concept of excited delirium, it should do some work, explicit, explicit work and uh, proactive work to correct that mischaracterization and just work to formally withdraw any acknowledgement of that report. It would involve discussing with academic medical journals, the editors, to uh, make sure that any descriptions of excited delirium as being an endorsed concept by ASAP are countered. Um, there'd be outreach to the lay media to correct this impression, not just that they didn't endorse it, but that they stand against uh, uh, such diagnostic language. And I think emergency physicians in the American College of Physicians, uh, emergency physicians should be directed to avoid using ASEP's name to uh, lend credibility to the diagnosis of excited delirium. Well, ASEP isn't in a very unique category. They're in a common category that it takes more than a decade, because we talk about this all the time on the SGEM. Knowledge translation typically takes more than a decade. Indeed. And this was 2009 report. And the citation that I support, you know, like it takes more than 10 years, was actually a paper from, I'm going to say 2011, that says it takes 17 years and not for 100% of the information of high quality, clinically relevant information to reach the patient's bedside, but 14% of that information. And so it does take time. And these institutions and these organizations are getting better, but I don't think that they're as nimble as social media. And that's one of the reasons I'm trying to use the power of social media to cut that knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year. And so, well, I hear the frustration in your voice and I share the frustration, not <laughs> specifically about ASAP, because I think they're doing great work in certain areas. My frustration is that it just takes so long. And maybe it's the reason we gravitated towards emergency medicine, because we have short attention spans and we just want to get things done. And so I, I just... Yes, I know that it's a 2009 report. That's 14 years ago. Um, that's not really out of the ballpark for uh, how long it can take things. I would say there is that objection that it's an old report and it um, it is probably is that irrelevant now. It's a you know it's a 14 year old report. It doesn't really carry as much relevance right now. The reason I suggest we suggest such an active campaign by ASAP to retire the port is that it is still very relevant right now in training materials for EMS, for police. It is cited very regularly in recent litigation involving deaths. Unless there's some sort of proactive effort by organizations, um, we will expect this long period of translation to occur. All right. The fourth and final point that you made in your document as a way to move forward was to consider having greater professional and racial diversity in future panels. Yeah, ASEP has um, done well, including certain groups in the 2009 and the 2021 
um, paper on uh, hyperactive delirium. We have toxicologists and specialists in EMS and uh, representatives uh, um, from law enforcement. But there really ought to be, you know, people with expertise in emergency psychiatry, um, people with uh, perspectives on health equity um, that we have within the College of Emergency Physicians, and even community advocates and representation. I do think that a recent panel they had in Colorado to review the use of ketamine was a pretty good example of that. It was more than just emergency physicians. It had a more rounded group of people to offer perspectives, and it seemed to be pretty productive. See, you're already leading into my fifth point that I wanted to add. You could have, uh, maybe I'll send a letter into the journal and say, uh, here's a suggested correction or not a correction, a, 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 a friendly amendment to add a number five. Oh boy. And this is, this is the recommendation I would have made. Add patience to the guidelines and panels and policy statement process. If you're following the evidence-based medicine or EBM philosophy, it has three pillars. There's the literature which informs our care and it guides our care, but it, it shouldn't really dictate our care. And we still are clinicians and we need to use our clinical judgment to apply that to the N of one, that one patient that we have in front of us. But that N of one, that patient isn't just a number. They're a patient with different values and different preferences. And the best way to find out what they prefer is, and I'm just spitballing here, Brooks, um, ask them what they would prefer with regards to treatment. And so I think that ASAP, and I've been advocating this for some time, that ASAP and other organizations should include patients in the process of developing these documents. I think that's not just, I think it's a pillar for a good reason. I think with a number of the developments over the last few years, uh, emergency medicine, emergency physicians, we've been very quick to defend ketamine, which we should. I love ketamine. Great drug. But we've been very quick to defend ketamine when there's been a death, but we haven't been so quick to reach out to the community and get their understanding. We've been very quick to represent our perspective, but I think if we did a better job of listening, of bringing people into the process, I think if we actively engage these communities, individuals, uh, if we do that publicly, if we listen to their concerns, and we validate um, the community's concerns. I think this is going a long way towards maintaining our credibility um, as as a profession that's here to help. I look at it as a real opportunity. I find that using it in my clinical practice on a one-to-one -one basis really helps with the therapeutic alliance with patients. I, I didn't think to mention it, but I'll just mention now. I, I had a, a horrible resuscitation of a young person. Let's make sure it's HIPAA compliant. It's totally HIPAA compliant. It was a, a, a devastating and sudden medical condition for them. And uh, we were leading a resuscitation. I had mentioned to the family that we were going to sedate the patient for intubation. And there was a very strong emotional reaction from the family questioning my decision. When I reframed it as providing anesthesia to enable a breathing tube to be placed, their, 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 their understanding changed completely. And I realized that perhaps on a larger scale, we're not explaining what we do very well and that we can't know how some of our explanations 
will be taken at first. And it just struck home for me. I, I, I don't I don't know. I can't explain everything about that encounter, but it, it certainly gave me pause. Well, it's why at the end of each SGM episode, we have how would we clinically apply the new paper that we're reviewing and had done a structured critical appraisal of. But then the next thing to say is how would we convey that medical information, the literature and how it incorporated it into our practice potentially, but how would we convey that to the patient so that they could understand so that, that we can have a faithful communication with them about what was actually taking place? I think there are a lot of levels. For example, I think we need to validate that restraints and forced injections um, do hurt our therapeutic relationship with patients. Sometimes it's necessary, but we should validate that it is a certain amount of force used on someone and that it, it, can, it, it can cause a complicated reaction. Uh, it, it shouldn't stop us from clearly uh, addressing uh, uh, an issue that needs to be handled, but it, it, we should acknowledge that. I, I think if we also contextualize how our use of sedation or restraints are used to maintain their health or, 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 or temporarily um, allow us to better evaluate it, I think that is probably a very helpful perspective to share, but also get their idea about what they think there is going on with them. I, I think, as, as sort of I alluded to in my story, I, I, sometimes we don't understand how our, our, our actions, our, our, our behavior is being taken. Well, those were the constructive ways forward that you had suggested. I think it's time to bring us up to the fact that ASAP has published a task force report just two years ago, 2021, on hyperactive delirium with severe agitation in emergency settings. And it said that, quote, explicit discussion of excited delirium syndrome will only occur in the context of evidence surrounding its existence as a distinct pathophysiologic phenomenon, end of quote. Now, this document did go on to say that, quote, while the authors of this paper were informed by the 2009 paper, this work is de novo and not to be construed as an update or refutation of the 2009 paper, end of quote. So do you think this 2021 task force goes far enough to address the issue that you're concerned about? It was a step in the right direction. I'm all in favor of getting a better evidence base for us for dealing with emer behavioral emergencies. Certainly, I'm not an expert on behavioral emergencies. I think I'm a better than average bear with EKGs and bedside echo, but behavioral emergencies, I think I'm just a regular ER doc looking for all the guidance and support I can get. And we do need everything we can do to, to find out how to better take care of our out of control folks in the ED is, is good. I do like the framing of hyperactive delirium with severe agitation that that really is pretty close to established psychiatric diagnoses and actually sounds darn close to what Charles Wetley described back in 1981, his original description of excited delirium. I think the 2021 document from ASAP kind of messed things up a little bit, though. So it sort of conflates a lot of the the, 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 what they propose is a, a new discussion of hyperactive delirium. Um, it conflates it with excited delirium. A, a lot of the, when they describe the potential high mortality of hyperactive delirium, they use the excited delirium literature to, to support that. The document does spend some time going over the 
2009 criteria for excited delirium without much reinterpretation. Um, and they actually reinforced that describing these two entities, excited delirium and hyperactive delirium, can, are clinically indistinguishable. One last point, um, they, they do describe the, that some information, they encourage people to um, include information in the chart, such as patient behavior, drug use, or history of psychosis, etc., to facilitate medical examiner determinations. And they say, robust documentation may assist further efforts to further our understanding of excited delirium. And so for a paper that's trying to move on from excited delirium, there's an apparent effort to support that diagnosis included in the paper. Um, so I, I think in many ways, it sort of confused the issue going forward. Well, there are other organizations besides ASEP out there that have comments on this term excited delirium. And, and in March of this year, the National Association of Medical Examiners, or NAME, came out with a statement and they said, quote, although the term excited delirium or excited delirium syndrome have been used by forensic pathologists as a cause of death in the past, these terms are not endorsed by NAME or recognized in renewed classification by the World Health Organization, ICD-10, and the DSM-5. Instead, NAME, and again, that's the National Association of Medical Examiners, endorses that the underlying cause of natural or unnatural, to include trauma, for the delirious state be determined, if possible, and used for the death certificate. What do you think of that? It actually sounds very reasonable. And the supreme irony to me is that um, the controversial uh, father figure or parent figure of excited delirium, Dr. Charles Wetley, who coined the phrase excited delirium in a 1981 paper, this is basically his message from that paper, that delirium can be hypoactive or stuporous, or it can be excited and agitated, and that the crucial thing was not to simply rest on that appreciation of the delirium, but to determine the underlying cause. I think this statement from name is incredibly important because for a while it was reported that the only two medical major medical organizations described as endorsing a said delirium were ASAP and name. And so this definitely does change the conversation. Well, when preparing to do this uh, special SGEM Extra podcast, when you start looking into an issue, that's when you start noticing things more. And there was a recent CBC, that's our national broadcaster, had a story titled Canadian Coroners Starting to Reject Excited Delirium as Cause of Police-Related Deaths. And so I'll put a link in the show notes to that CBC report. But there are other organizations besides ASAP and NAME that have comments on this issue. Yeah, that's an interesting story. And there's, uh, I guess, uh, a, a court case going on right now involving a, a death in police custody where excited delirium has been cited. I, I, I don't understand that context, or, or but um, I, I appreciate there's a very active conversation going on now. I will say that there's two other organizations recently that came out with their own statements that really point in the way that we suggest that ASEP could go. Um, the American Academy of Emergency Medicine put out a fairly short statement um, last year 
where they rejected not just the term excited delirium, but also the broader concept, um, not just call it something else. They, they, they describe, you know, specifically, you know, any cases meeting past definitions for excited delirium, um, which is a much broader umbrella than simply getting rid of a um, supposedly offensive uh, phrase. Um, and both that statement from AEM and uh, a um, report from the Colorado Department of Public Health Ketamine Investigatory Review Panel from 2021, both of those validate concerns about excited delirium being tied up with racial bias in, in um, how people are treated. And so I think those are two very constructive approaches to the issue. Brooks, we have some exciting news. The SGEM likes to have their finger on the pulse of emergency medicine. And ASAP has come out with a new statement on this issue. And in the document, they explicitly state that, quote, ASEP does not recognize the use of the term excited delirium and its use in clinical settings. And I'll include the entire statement in the show notes, but we have Dr. Jeff Goodlow. He's here to give us more information and more detail on this new ASEP statement. Hi, Ken. I'm a longtime listener and fan of the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, so thanks for the opportunity to comment with today's viewpoint from the American College of Emergency Physicians. First and foremost, our focus has been and remains on the safety of patients with hyperactive delirium with severe agitation. That primary goal drove the creation of ASEP's 2021 Task Force Report on Hyperactive Delirium with Severe Agitation, and I'm both humbled and honored to have served as the Board of Directors Liaison, Author, and Co-Editor of that report. The American College of Emergency Physicians recognizes the existence of hyperactive delirium syndrome with severe agitation, a potentially life-threatening clinical condition characterized by a combination of vital sign abnormalities such as hyperpyrexia, hypertension, pronounced agitation, altered mental status, and metabolic derangements. Emergency physicians and appropriately trained and supervised paramedics most often encounter patients with life-threatening levels of severe agitation and are able to appropriately recognize and treat hyperactive delirium syndrome. These patients are at high risk of direct physical trauma, not only unintentional harm from trauma such as falls, but also the stress that may result from physical restraint that may be required to facilitate the safety of the patient, bystanders, and responding professionals and ensure appropriate patient evaluation by emergency personnel. ASEP believes there is value in strengthening the training and working relationship between emergency medical services clinicians, and law enforcement professionals. The goal when treating patients with signs of hyperactive delirium syndrome is to focus on reducing stress, preventing physical harm, and transporting these patients to an emergency department where they can be treated by an emergency physician. ASEP does not recognize the use of the term excited delirium and its use in clinical settings. In order to develop a more medically accurate understanding and description of this clinical syndrome, the 2021 ASEP Task Force synthesized the most current information available regarding the recognition, evaluation, and management of patients in both the pre-hospital and emergency department settings 
presenting with hyperactive delirium accompanied by severe agitation. This report was approved by the ASEP Board of Directors and can be easily found at ASEP's homepage on the internet, www.asep.org, and simply using the search term hyperactive delirium. ASEP supports continued multidisciplinary research, dialogue, and consensus to better recognize, manage, and advocate for patients who show signs of hyperactive delirium accompanied by severe agitation using evidence-based safe care. Any such multidisciplinary work on this topic should include emergency medicine physicians, as well as other stakeholders with diverse backgrounds and expertise in EMS, toxicology, neurology, emergency psychiatry, law enforcement, and health equity. Improving the recognition and management of patients with hyperactive delirium syndrome with severe agitation can help prevent avoidable tragedies, enhance training, and encourage best practices and evidence-based medical care. Brooks, what are your thoughts on this new ASAP statement? I love this continuing discussion. I, th- I think this is constructive and it's uh, the way forward for all of us in emergency medicine and the patients. That being said, I'm, I'm not sure entirely what is meant by does not recognize use of the term. Perhaps there's something I'm not appreciating about the phrasing, but the 2021 ASAP report on hyperactive delirium used the term excited delirium over 40 times. Um, it's mixed up in the conversation about the evidence for hyperactive delirium, and it's clinically indistinguishable. So it's, it's, I'm not sure how they can use the phrase that often in that document and not recognize the term. And by limiting rejection to just the term and not the underlying concept or criteria, I'm not sure what that accomplishes it. I'm not sure what that accomplishes. It really, it's, it has to be a look at the larger picture. There's no acknowledgement that there was any explicit or implicit support of the 2009 paper. And I, I think that's appropriate to address for ASAP. And I think it's a fairly benign action. I think it would be a fairly uncontroversial step to withdraw any support for an old paper that you don't think has relevance. And it doesn't acknowledge any racial impact that the codifying of excited delirium may have uh, encouraged. Um, Unlike statements from the AMA, the American Psychiatric Association, AEM, and the statement from Colorado that we mentioned before. So uh, I'm looking forward to more discussion from ASAP on this topic. So I'm going to look at it as a glass is half full, baby steps forward, incremental change. Um, Sometimes we don't get everything we want but it's a step forward and perhaps more to come and we'll see where this lands. So we have some late breaking news and this is a bit of why the podcast has been delayed being uploaded because we have the current president of the American College of Emergency Physicians, Dr. Christopher Kang, who is kind enough to give comments on the new ASAP hyperactive delirium position statement. And we thank Dr. Kang for coming on and providing this extra content. 
I would like to thank the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine and Dr. Milne for the opportunity to enhance the ongoing discussion to bridge this knowledge translation gap by providing additional pertinent information, perspective, and context. It is critical that emergency physicians actively learn, reevaluate, and advance knowledge about new and evolving conditions utilizing available contemporary concepts, perspectives, and evidence. In 2009, a white paper was produced by a work group who gathered input, information, and literature available at that time. The ASEP Board of Directors then received the completed paper, and the work group concluded. Some content from the paper was subsequently shared by workgroup members, newsletters, and through other discussions and forums. The ASEP Board of Directors did not formally approve or adopt the paper. In 2021, a task force was convened to reevaluate the topic with then-available concepts, perspectives, experiences, and evidence. That group's added and updated understanding was reflected in their paper that was approved by the ASEP Board of Directors and pending further processing for peer-reviewed publication. Those interested in learning more about the specific content, context, and current position are encouraged to read the report themselves. This spring, ASEP posted a statement online that confirms key tenets of the 2021 paper, including that ASEP does not recognize the use of the term, quote, excited delirium, unquote, or its use in the clinical setting and that continued reference to the 2009 paper is inaccurate and outdated. That focus must remain on patient care, which includes improving the education, training, treatment, and working relationships with stakeholders with increased and needed diverse backgrounds, experiences, and expertise. That ASAP understands the evolution and challenges of preliminary concepts, awareness, knowledge, and evidence, and has been proactive with conversations, updates, and more accurately defining the syndrome as the leaders in frontline medicine. And we will continue to support continued dialogue and research to advance our appreciation and shared understanding within emergency medicine, as well as with other specialties, professions, and populations to improve patient care and outcomes, to mitigate tragedies, and to increase the acceptance and application of evidence-based medicine to further address current and future knowledge translation gaps. Thank you. I would like to thank Dr. Goodlow and Dr. Kang for coming on the SGEM and providing additional content, context, and clarity on this important issue and explicitly stating that ASEP does not recognize the use of the term excited delirium and its use in clinical settings. We do an SGEM Twitter poll, so probably what I'll do is throw up a Twitter poll on Tuesday when this is released that week and say, do you think that the ASEP statement uh, is an improvement, is neutral, or uh, doesn't make any progress? Something like that. Interesting. Yeah, and put it out to the uh, put it out to the Twitterverse and see what people think. Do you think that this is a step in the right direction? Do you think it's not far enough? Something like that, uh, and we'll and we'll just see because they're just the two of us talking now. But obviously, there's a lot more people out there with um, their ideas on this topic. The thing I love about emergency medicine is we're all we all face the same reality. Whatever our sort of ideologic or philosophical differences, we all go into the same job and we see the same patients. And we often come to the same solutions, no matter what other baggage we have. And so I think it's going to be the case with this. 
Well, the SGM will be back next episode doing a structured critical appraisal of a recent publication, trying to cut that KT window, that knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year using the power of social media. So patients get the best care based on the best evidence. Now, we don't usually have a keener contest question associated with the SGM extras, but you came up with a question that you wanted to throw out there. And so if you've got a keener contest question, let's hear it and I'll give someone a cool skeptical prize if they get the right answer. I have an interesting Batman Excited Delirium crossover. There's a classic Batman graphic novel uh, dating from the mid-1980s, the era when Excited Delirium was being created in Miami. What was the name of the villain who was faster, stronger, and seemingly impervious to pain? Oh, okay. So if you know who that villain and we're looking for the name of the villain in 1986 in that Batman comic uh, series it was a graphic novel series of four four books then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line the first correct answer will receive one of the cool skeptical prizes and they're new this year I'm I'm looking at you Dennis Wren for getting this because you are a huge Batman fan Well, thanks very much, Brooks, for reaching out to me and suggesting that we revisit this because I love going back and taking a look at the same issue when more information is available and updating what we're doing. So I appreciate you doing that. Thank you for having me on, Ken. This has been a real pleasure. Um, It's great talking with you. And when you publish something on ECGs or something else, uh, a paper comes out that you want to critically appraise, we can do a standard SGEM episode with you where we do a structured critical appraisal of a recent publication probing it for its validity before you leave i need you to read the sgem tagline remember to be skeptical of anything you learn even if you heard it on the skeptic's guide to emergency medicine talk to everyone next week